from Brighton on the English South Coast, these are the voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums with Dr Sophie Frost. Finding the right words to summarise the Booth Museum of Natural History isn't easy. But luckily, as we'll find in this episode, its lively characters and gigantic collections speak for themselves. One of Royal Pavilion and Museum's five sites, this Museum of Victorian Taxidermy, notably of British birds, but also insects, fossils, bones and skeletons, is indeed profoundly fascinating, wonderfully chaotic and hugely varied. But there's also something portentous about the booth, something that prompts us to more carefully reflect on our relationship with nature, on our responsibilities at this time of ecological crisis and climate emergency. In this episode, we'll be spending time with Lee Ismail, Curator of Natural Sciences, who introduces the museum and explains its origins. Throughout, you'll be hearing snippets from a film made in 1990 by the University of Brighton to mark the centenary of Booth, introduced to me by volunteer Lavender Jones, and which I found just too of its time not to include, you'll see what I mean. We'll also be hearing again from Lavender, who you may remember from our exploration of the ghosts of Preston Manor in series one. But to get us started, we'll be harking back to the voice of Zach Flannery, Visitor Services Officer, as he briefly describes some of his experiences of working at Booth. Right, enough from me. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did making it. Don't go if you're not interested in taxidermy, you don't like stuff like that, you'll hate it because that's all it is. <laughs> but do go if you just want to see something a bit strange. It's very much of its time. You've got to remember that if you didn't have zoos and you weren't travelling, it was, it was a way for people to see what these animals would look like and maybe in their environments they reinterpret it. But also I just saw some really strange things like a tortoise turned into an ashtray. And so oh. I know. So you just you just look at some of this stuff, thinking people had some weird, I did just some weird stuff for that. Just for anyone who hasn't visited Booth, who might be listening, if you could just give us a, a quick summary of of how it came into being. So a bit of the history behind the museum. So it was founded by a gentleman naturalist uh, Edward Thomas Booth, the only son of parents who had, I think, I think his father had a legal practice and his mother was the heir to a mining fortune. He was their only son, so he went. He was sent to Cambridge uh, to study law, but uh, spent all his time out on the fen shooting birds instead. <laughs> um, As you do. And so <laughs> after his first year was asked to leave <laughs> and he returned to Brighton. And both of his parents died within a few uh, years of each other. So he effectively inherited all of their money, the equivalent of tens of millions of pounds a day. So he was so wealthy as to never having to need to work. Wealthy enough to have a uh, train carriage based at Brighton Station that could be hitched onto any train going anywhere in the country <laughs> if he heard of rare birds being spotted in those areas. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> he had a mansion built next to where the museum currently stands and it was the only house in that area at the time and the entire street is empty otherwise. <laughs> 
his wife insisted he get the collection out of the house. So he had the museum <laughs> built in the back garden. That's what became the Booth Museum. So when he had a purpose-built museum for his birds, he decided he'd then collect an example of every bird resident or migrant to uh, the British Isles. And I think by the time of his death, he got about 230, roughly, of the 420 on the British list. Here's the first audio clip from the 1990 video made by students at the University of Brighton, where you can hear Ed Jarzembowski, head of the museum at the time, as well as some edgy 80s synth pop and some children bringing in a dead bird for taxidermal purposes. Thought it was breathing. Mm-hmm. 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 So what do you think? It flew into the window, Pete. Yeah, and um, we saw a blue tip, and the blue tip dodged it, but it just flew straight in. Like the old blue tip got away. Mm-hmm. And what else is in the chalk, apart from these? Apart from these white lumps? Can you see any here? Yeah, there's lots. That's it. This is more or less the first piece of flint that we've come across. Are you going to give it to the museum? Yes. Oh, that's good. Thanks for really being useful for us to have. People actually come in here and they do things. One of the things they do is they have lectures, they have classes, they have handling sessions, and they get involved with us in discovering the natural world. And the beauty of this is that we then become part of the community. We're not just an institution. So I'm Lee Ismail, I'm Curator of Natural Sciences here. I basically look after the natural science collections of the Royal Pavilion and Museums, Bryson. So I'm in charge of the collections part of it, and then my colleague Sarah is in charge of the building and uh, facilities management type uh, parts of it. So she's got the boring job and I've got the exciting job. (laughs) (laughs) She's not here to stand up for herself. (laughs) I understand you've done this role for quite a while. Yes, I've uh, been here uh, almost 10 years now, so 10 years next July. Oh, right, okay. What kind of changes have you seen at Booth in in that time? So originally there were four different keeper roles looking after the different areas of the collection. When I started, the assistant keeper was the role that had just retired and I was an indirect replacement as a curator rather than an assistant keeper. The... Keeper of the museum was the second role, still here, full-time. Then when the keeper retired, his predecessor, uh, who was the volunteer manager down at uh, Brighton Museum, that role was deleted, so he was moved up here as the keeper. When he retired, his role was completely deleted, so it's gone from managerial positions of keepers down to just a curator here. And at that time, it was just me and nobody else. So I was here completely on my own, having to run uh, this uh, museum with some assistance from Chris Drake, who at that time managed the buildings of both the booth and Preston Manor, but was based at Preston Manor. That was only a part-time role. So effectively, I ran this site, plus the collections, plus doing programming here and uh, at the sites downtown. So it was very stretched, very stressful <laughs> few <It's>, years. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. And presumably that's been a, ameliorated a little by having Sarah come and be based down here. Yes. Yeah, so now that Chris just manages Preston Manor, um, Sarah uh, now manages this building. But that's still a part-time role um, for something that should 
or requires for full-time position Mm -hmm. the collections based part of it there's still just me and there's a single collections assistant role but that's two grades below me so it's not an equivalent of a keeper and we have the largest collection in all the service so there's one million objects just in this uh, building. It's probably worth just giving some context now. We're sitting in this long room surrounded by your butterfly and insect collection. Yeah. And you must come and see it. It's huge. Like the, some of these butterflies are enormous. <laughs> but I mean, alone, how, I don't even know how many butterflies and insects we must be surrounded by, but several uh, this, thousand. Uh, this is our insect gallery, and there's probably a couple of thousand uh, in here. But that's an example of just the tip of the iceberg of our collections yeah upstairs there's 500,000 um, of which 450,000 of them are the butterflies and moths so we've got one of the largest lepidoptera uh, collections which are the butterflies and moths uh, in the country outside of the national collections and we went to a conference and they had the natural history museum had a slide showing the largest collections in the country Uh, And we weren't actually on that list, but by the time they got to the eighth museum down, we had a larger collection of insects in that uh, museum. So uh, I spoke to that curator. Good. I was just saying, hope you put your hand up. uh, (laughs) She said we needed to go on to these various uh, databases to make sure that our collection was uh, more widely known. So we're beginning to move on to those uh, databases, which originally were on when it was all paper-based, but with the various cuts and with my predecessors not being so computer savvy Mm -hmm. um, and so it's having to do that work um, and get us back onto those but with all the constraints on our time and workload it's the difficulty with that as well so So, what's the effect of just having one curator on these and one collections assistant rather than potentially four keepers so the biggest effect is in terms of object care because of the very nature of our collections they're all natural material which is exactly what Mm. other insects want to eat Um, so they're the most vulnerable collection in the service Uh, the only one which probably compares our world art and costume because they have a lot of natural material as well when an insect pest finds a jaw of butterflies, for example, which is an old jaw, which we haven't had the money to replace, that just gets devastated. So we have examples of jaws upstairs which have been completely eaten away. In fact, we have uh, a drawer at the front of the museum in a case specifically put to try and encourage people not to eat in the museum to show them what happens when pests do get in. Right. Encouraged in by their food. And mm-hmm. then when they've eaten the food, they then go searching for other stuff which tends to be our collections so that's in terms of the um, collections care part of it Mm -hmm. he was only interested in British birds and would only accept things in his museum which he'd collected i.e. shot himself Um, so anything that he didn't actually get um, he wouldn't accept in his museum but when it was given to uh, Brighton Museum uh, in his will that's when future curators first of all started to uh, add to his collections to fill in the gaps, the ones that he didn't manage to collect. And then as we moved on, other collections came to us. The insect collections, for example, came up in the 30s, first as a transfer of the 
British Museum secondary collection coming to us. And then from other collectors, entomologists such as Jenna and uh, Arthur Hall, who collected in various different uh, areas around the world. So the Arthur Hall collection includes type specimens of his Central and South American uh, Lepidoptera, so they're what the entire species is named after, those specific um, specimens. So they're our most, some of our most important scientific collections. And then the most uh, recent example, so we've had 25,000 uh, insects um, which were collected by an entomologist based in uh, Sussex and Kent, but he collected around the world. Uh, and when he died a couple of years ago, his collection came to us uh, from a bequest. So that's exotic beetles and uh, flies and uh, hymenoptera, such as the bees and wasps. Uh, and it has exciting things like tarantula hawk wasps, which are one of my favourites, which are the wasps which parasitise tarantulas and... It's a whole very gory story, which I like to tell in uh, events and talks, because... (laughs) That sounds horrific and skin-crawling, literally. (laughs) The big collection of skeletons at the back. So the skeleton collection was actually a second museum, which was the private museum of Frederick W. Lucas. And he had a museum in Rottingdean in the late 1800s through to 19, I think 1914. He was a lawyer um, and his entire collection was purchased. So he bought all of his collections from auction houses, apart from the two dog skeletons, which are the deerhound was his own dog. And then there's a little toy Pomeranian, I think. And that was the dog of his uh, stepdaughters. Um, Is this one he famously killed before it was ready? Yes, so he wanted the skeleton for his collection. So rather than wait for the dog to pass away naturally, he basically killed it and then added it to his collection, which is why we don't have his documentation, because then, uh, understandably, his stepdaughters detested him and so burned to all of his library once um, he died, uh, because that was supposed to come to Brighton Museum, but... They burned it rather than have any memory of him whatsoever. Gosh, that's sort of like a moral question, the ethic. Like, <laughs> I sort of don't blame them. <laughs> yes, if, if somebody killed my dog, I'd, I'd want absolutely no memory of, it, of him at all. No. <laughs> so Booth sort of crept out in size. Yeah. But in the 60s, all of the collections were amalgamated. So all the natural history collections from Brighton Museum were transferred up here. And a second floor was added um, inside the building, which is where all those collections are now stored. This is um, maybe a bit of a philosophical question, but what do you think is the most special thing about it that means it's so important to Brighton and Hove? So the dioramas, which are the displays, They are the first examples of uh, birds being displayed in their natural habitats. So Booth went out and painted the birds as he saw them before shooting them. Um, But when he came back, he then provided those paintings to his taxidermists uh, and they made the cases as an accurate 
habitat display. Mm. So the first examples of those, um, uh, apparently the Smithsonian has called us in the past the home of the diorama. Oh, wow. And that um, uh, idea was then picked up uh, in a big way by their natural history museum. So the American Museum of Natural History in New York has some of the leading examples of those amazing diorama displays. Um, uh, but that's all inspired by uh, people like Booth. I guess as an art form, this is sort of where it began. Yeah. That's what you're saying. And they had what I call cornucopia displays previously. So we've got a couple of examples there at the front, and that's where you've got a whole mix of birds displayed in a case uh, and it could be on branches and a sort of fantastical uh, natural display, but all of the birds are unrelated to each other. They're uh, all posed together where they wouldn't naturally be sitting together, especially if one predates the other. Um, and there's no consideration of their natural surroundings. So that's the traditional way. And it was Booth who then wanted them set as they were naturally found. Historically, just very, very important. Yeah, especially for people in those days without television, without fast uh, cameras to capture those sorts of natural settings. So if you weren't able to go and see uh, those species in the wild, in their natural habitat, a display like this would have been the only way to, to see them in their natural setting mm. um, we've also got lots of fossil material including quite a lot of uh, fossils found in the chalk as our local geology the sort of reference material for people researching those species and wanting to see what the entire species is described from most recently we've had uh, somebody from um, a laboratory in Florida uh, and he's come to look at our uh, Central and South American specimens and has found, I think, four or five which he thinks are new to science. And at least one of those wow. has been published uh, recently uh, as a recognised new species. So that's another new type specimen. Mm. Um, so that's an example of why we hold all these collections, because... It could be that there's new species in those. And by having those, it means you don't have to go and collect new ones necessarily. So it helps save the existing uh, population. Yeah. Um, and ever since the uh, 1950s and 60s, we've been all about conservation. Um, and it's best, uh, I don't know when this became official policy, uh, but from at least the 1990s, uh, we haven't accepted anything that's been purposely killed for a museum display. So things that come into us are either things that have died naturally, things that have been uh, killed uh, by misadventure, um, mm -hmm. uh, so things that get hit on the road or other fatalities in that sort of manner. When I spoke to Lavender, she painted this really compelling picture of standing in by the fridges that used to be in the back garden, mm -hmm. sort of where all the roadkill would get stored when people are brought in. They used to have big fridges outside in the garden, mm. full of um, 
things, you know, ready for stuffing. Right. Uh, there'd been a roadkill, somebody'd bring something in or whatever. And so occasionally we, the whole museum would be full of the smell of boiled badger. <laughs> It wasn't very pleasant. No. We're not allowed to do things like that now with health and safety. I really appreciated it as a sort of an understanding of a museum which you're not really given normally. <laughs> so we do still have, in fact, we've expanded our freezers. So we now have four freezers. Um, two of those are inside and reserved for quarantine purposes uh, because we don't want the smell inside. Uh, and the two outside are what have the fresh corpses in. Um, right. The smell she's describing is probably from uh, a power cut that happened, I think it was around 2005. Uh, so it's only been described to me where there was a power cut across the museum and all the power came back on, but the fuses had tripped for the freezers and nobody discovered that until about two weeks later. So everything in the freezers had turned to soup, effectively. Uh, and oh my goodness! The smell has been described to me. Uh, uh, yeah, it sounded horrendous. That does sound horrendous. Everything was cleared from one of the freezers as the working freezer, and there's a lingering smell in that, which is, might be what lavender was describing. Yeah, but it was the right. second freezer where they had a snow leopard an orangutan and a couple of other rare things in it which they couldn't bring themselves to chuck away so they thought at least we can save the skeletons from them and uh, me and me and my colleague Kerry whenever we had to go into that freezer the smell was just awful we have since had the snow leopard processed by somebody who uh, was unfazed by the smell <laughs> and that freezer has now been uh, gotten rid of and then the second freezer which had the lingering smell failed and caused another degradation of things luckily it wasn't two weeks it was only about uh, five days where it was but it was still long enough to them to start to rot so that freezer has also been disposed of so we now have all clean freezers <laughs> and no smell <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, well, we catch any any future failures. <laughs> well, I think I think it's important to capture this gritty, the gritty dark side of the museum. And <laughs> um, just quickly, what happened to the orangutan? Did that get processed as well? Unfortunately, the orangutan was uh, unsavable, so that has gone. But the snow leopard, we have a nice new mount, and we're hoping to have that displayed in our redeveloped galleries. Uh, uh, in the next couple of years. Oh, okay. You know, you mentioned right at the beginning about how it could be singing its song louder yes. on the national stage. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you want to say anything about that. And just generally, it'd be good to just understand a little bit better what the refurbishment's going to consist of. Okay. So uh, we've got a, a vision of a three-phase uh, redevelopment. So the bit which is currently being um, worked on and has been given the go-ahead is the redevelopment of the osteology galleries so they've been here since the late 60s early 70s they look very tired now very old um, the interpretation is very outdated so you have for example bone colored skeletons on bone colored backgrounds <laughs> uh, and then the labels are also on a sort of yellow background so everything blends in and the cases themselves are very difficult to get into uh, 
we're banned from opening some of them because of the weight of the glass. Um, so it's difficult to do anything with those galleries. So that's the purpose for redeveloping those, mm-hmm. even though they are popular because people love all the osteology, uh, that's the bones, sorry, yeah, I'm using the scientific mm-hmm. term. Uh, <laughs> uh, the bone gallery is mm-hmm. uh, easier to refer to it. Mm-hmm. And so we're redeveloping that into um, galleries looking at how uh, life has, has evolved, uh, but with jumping off midway through the story. So we're going to focus on the uh, evolution of vertebrates. The Booth Museum was set up as a bird museum. Mm-hmm. Until the 60s, it was called the Booth Bird Museum. Um, oh. And it's only since the 60s we've become a general natural science museum. So we want to tell the story of how birds have evolved. So the pinnacle of evolution in our story will be birds, because mammals actually evolved before birds. Uh, it's just they never became dominant until after the disappearance of dinosaurs. We will have uh, the story of all the uh, vertebrates evolving, and then we'll finish with birds as the pinnacle, with uh, but with mammals as dominant and what we're doing to cause both the extinction of birds as well as all other uh, life forms. Wow. Um, This sounds great. So it'll be quite a dark ending for part of it, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to end on a real downer note. So we will have also a case as the true ending of it where we discuss some of the stories of hope, some of the things that people Mm -hmm. are doing to try and change that Mm -hmm. and why it's important to... Uh, both encourage that and to fund that because the world seems to be stuck in this Victorian economy. Progress in, uh, at the cost of the environment is what seems to be funded and still gets all the money. When in actual fact, we should be looking at the natural world as uh, our support system. If that collapses, the amount of money we have to spend to... Uh, correct all those problems is a ridiculous amount of money which nature provides for free so by sticking to this Victorian economy and not considering all the conservation things that we know now Victorians didn't understand that and they had a a supportive natural ecosystem which could support all their uh, uh, I'm not sure the right word Rapaciousness, is that right? No, <laughs> no that's, that's not right. I, I know what you mean. They're um, but then cutting green, down everything. Uh, they were able to uh, take everything that nature provided and profit from it without it causing that many problems at that time. But by continuing that, is we've reached a point where we're now causing massive problems for everything else that lives on the planet, as well mm. as ourselves. Even if it's just a small percentage of people who visit who can then make a change in the world and mm-hmm. say this is why it's important to change that then that'll have helped in some way the climate emergency conversation that's spiraled so much this year is just <laughs> well it just is so valuable and it's really nice that it's kind of totally embedded and written into the new plan yeah Anyway, are you telling me, so that was, we're just, the evolution gallery is just one of the... So that's only the first phase. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, the second phase, we plan to change the insects galleries and discovery galleries. And in that space, 
we want to get a lot more of the insect collections on display because like I said there's about 2,000 specimens but we have amazing things upstairs which we just don't have the capability to display at the moment mm. it'll be focusing on the stories more than mm-hmm. the the dry information because modern museums and modern interpretation is all about giving people a jumping off point a sort of taster a hook to get them interested in it and then you've got the internet to go and research all those uh, background information about it so there, there isn't a nece- necessity to have books on the wall as uh, museums used to be mm. it's more about the interesting stories and the getting people really in- involved with those things because if people don't care then the they don't they won't care that things are going extinct so we've got so many really interesting stories behind all these uh all these creatures uh, what i love about what you just said lee is that there's so much about how do we have digital in museums and actually what you've just said is no all we need to do is show the objects and present a riveting enough story that makes people curious enough to go home and use digital to do the research yeah, themselves yeah. which is really nice so that's not our responsibility to have some all singing all dancing like digital display somewhere and also it's giving the agency to the audience to say if you really care about this stuff you you've got the tools already to go and look it up yeah yeah. that's pretty cool so phase three is uh probably capital level redevelopment so that would be putting a second floor in around the main galleries which would be accessible to the public at the moment, Booth's case is a stacked floor to ceiling in a very high building. So people on the ground looking up at the high level cases can't see any of the details. So by having a second level, uh, which people could walk around, would give people a much better view of those cases. It would also give us another level to put further display cases on. So that would be the third phase, but that as you can imagine, would cost millions of pounds. So that's uh, why that's much further down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, get our existing uh, display spaces brought up to a modern standard first, and then we can hopefully get people infused to do that capital level redevelopment later. Uh, but that would probably be 10, 15, 20 years in the future. So. Mm-hmm. It's just such a rich collection and just this kind of... Well, if you think about it, there's a million stories in here. Yeah. I think in the past, people have sort of forgotten about us because though we've got a million objects, the vast majority of those million objects are tiny. Mm -hmm. Um, So a single butterfly, for example, doesn't have the same cachet as a a large... uh, oil painting for example um but each of those individual objects is still an object each of those is just as important needs needs to be preserved even if you can preserve an entire drawer of them rather than having to do each one individually we've covered loads (laughs) um okay so maybe let's call it a day for now and i'll press stop We did a survey of um, hedgehogs <laughs> with local children, which was great fun. This, that sounds really fun. <laughs> and, okay. And sadly, um, I got in touch with the Mammal Society recently to try and find the map that we did all this on, because we did the whole of Brighton mapped where people had hedgehogs, seen hedgehogs. 
etc etc very valuable information how did you so just before you told me about the mammal society how did you do that and did you go around knocking people's doors saying have you seen any hedgehogs we got all the schools together to do it i can't remember now it's such a long time ago but i know we had this enormous map and we did do survey work as well looking at all the um things that were growing in the parks around the around the areas of of sort of edge of edges of brighton and put it all onto a big uh, six-inch map, which has since gone, sadly. But the Mammal Society were quite interested and would have been had we still got the map, but they can't find it. I think it's got thrown away, probably. So it was at the Booth Museum somewhere? Yes, we did a lot of that, but I did a lot of cataloguing and that kind of thing and worked with some of the people that were there then. There were a lot of elderly volunteers upstairs I think most of us were quite high on thaldehyde or whatever you call it, just stuff that they use in museums. You know, that <laughs> awful stuff that smells so horrible, I don't think they use it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, does that mean that the, <laughs> so we were all the bit, um, el- elderly voluntary rates have dropped because yeah. there's no longer the... <laughs> well, died there. <laughs> <laughs> stuff somewhere. But uh, yeah, so it was a very different place then, of course. But there were some really interesting people there. There were the retired botanist... Mm. who was a lovely old lady came in and uh, there was a doctor there and they they all, we all got to know each other very well and they worked upstairs and I say the smell from this stuff that they used for sort of embalming <laughs> things was pretty high but they don't use it now I don't think <laughs> I mean I remember once somebody had bought in one of those enormous American bullfrogs that some twerp had put in a pond and one of the rangers from the countryside People have bought one of them, Parks Department, bought one in. And uh, I remember going to make some tea once in the Booth Museum and in the sink, there were these very big butler-type sinks in there. And there was this thing in there looking at me. (laughs) And it was alive? Yes. What did they want you to do with it? They didn't want me to do anything with it. I just went to fill the kettle. (laughs) (laughs) The Booth Museum seems to sit quite interestingly at the moment within... Brighton. I don't know. I'm still trying to... I think it's the most remarkable... It is. It's marvellous. Well, there was a time when they were going to close it. Really? Yes. And Preston Manor. And I was incensed. I think it has the largest collection of natural history outside the Natural History Museum in in London. Mm. And because it was a sort of provincial museum, I think it had been rather forgotten. And... Mr Booth in his time was so important. I did a lot of research on him because he was a remarkable man and what he started was quite extraordinary really. So I got together with one of the staff there. As an outsider I was always able to write things without being a member of staff, which mm. has been immensely useful mm. when you're trying to get things done. Mm. So I've, I have done that quite a lot, um, even when I was working, which I shouldn't have done, really. Um, <laughs> but it stopped things from happening sometimes. <laughs> it was quite a mull. We protested to the right places and got articles in the right magazines and that kind of thing and made a big fuss with the council. You know, good things to the staff there, really. They did... Mm. stop it happening I think and a lot of councillors too so there was a lot of times when we were all a bit worried about it because there was you know quite a good staff there 
but there weren't that many of them, but they all had their own, you know, there was the geologist, there was the taxidermist, there was the, mm. the, the you know, the man, they were all very well qualified, the entomologist there, and there's, there's still um, somebody there who mends butterflies, and he, he was there when I was there, and he's still there now. Mm. So and all these people were very, very important, and it was very popular in the schools. Yeah. Obviously it still is, and it, it, it's improved a lot since I was working there. So there was lots and lots of people were always using it. It was always busy, and there were lots and lots of exhibitions there, and they used to have marvellous exhibitions in the evenings, and right. full of people. It was, it was it's a great place. You know, it, it doesn't get the publicity that it used to. Many, many years ago, you used to get on the tube station in London and there would be posters on the wall as you went up the stairs for Preston Manor and the Booth Museum. I mean, the likelihood of you seeing that now. You might get it on your phone, probably. But it needs advertising. It needs... Yeah. But people don't know it's there. In the 70s... Brighton Polytechnic, as it was then, which is now Brighton University, decided they would do a film about staff there. And Did they really? Yes. Right. Uh, I've got it. Oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I should think he brought it with me. Must have been in the 90s. Sorry, I'm talking rubbish. No, 90s. Um, they came in, a um, couple of people with a microphone and a camera, and um, they stuck the microphone under your face and filmed you which was a bit off-putting right in your face and it was then that I was doing this survey work not just on Hedgehog but on the whole of the Brighton area and to do in terms of where bits of green were. There are 120 plus volunteers are totally invaluable to the borough. As a volunteer it's helped me to go out and look at patches that I wouldn't perhaps have otherwise looked at for wildlife and discover what's in town in Brighton. They filmed all the people that were working there at the time, which was the, um, the taxidermist, <clears throat> and his report was marvellous, and um, Gerald Legg, who was the entomologist who did all that work, and he worked with on the computers and things, and various other people, and they filmed a little girl walking around looking at a dinosaur. I think we got a, a dinosaur that had come from one of the London museums, in the museum at that time, so she spent the film looking at this little girl for an awfully long time walking around this dinosaur. But they, it, it is actually a very good record of what was happening then at that time. And that mm. Gerald Legg dressed up as Mr. Booth. Right. Um, it was very funny, really, because <laughs> at that time they'd just made this whole um, area inside the centre of the museum as his office. So they filmed Gerald working, writing things in his journal. And Gerald's bitch short sighted, so he'd taken his glasses off, so he was writing rather from a distance. 
quite funny, really. Um, but they also showed him going out shooting on the downs with, with Mr. Booth's gun, um, which must have been quite fun. <laughs> and Gerald at that time was keeper of the guns. There are a certain class of sportsmen who are very proud of their skill in shooting these unfortunate birds. They are by no means ashamed of boasting how many they have slaughtered following on some fine summer evening when the poor birds are hawking for insects for their young. This is not, however, much to boast of, as after a little practice I have seen a very poor shot, able to knock down several in succession. But it's a good film, yes. I got it, I put it onto a DVD. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that's needed to be resurrected in a way in order yes. to, to remind people how well, I've, I've significant. Well, I felt that too, yes. Uh, Ed John Zimbowski at the time was there. Um, he used to be known as Baron Big because he used to have a row of barrows in his pocket. Um, <laughs> he, he, was, he was an extraordinary man. He, he gives quite a talk, and it was at that time that the mouse-eared bat went extinct um, the last male mouse-eared bat mm-hmm. became extinct just as that programme was being made. And so somebody comes in and says... Oh, Jeremy, I've just heard that the mouse-eared bat is at death's door. And he says, not the mouse-eared bat. <laughs> That's his sort of famous line, really. <laughs> but it was very sad. And that was it. That was in Sussex. None left now. The last one was in Sussex. Mm. The mouse-eared bat perhaps highlights the kinds of conservation problems we now face. The mouse-eared bat is now reduced to one living specimen at a secret locality in Britain. And it's one last male, there isn't even a female to mate with this last remaining male, can no longer feed. I find that incredibly sad, and I think it would have saddened Mr Booth even more to realise that people will never, ever again see that beast in the wild. And it's purely our fault. It need never have happened. Gosh. The booth sounds like a very exciting place to have been working at that time. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. And they were lovely people to work with. You know, they were all very... There were an awful lot of people that came in. Mm. So it was a very good place to learn right across the board, really, because there's so many different... huge variety of things that you could do there. And such a wonderful collection. Yeah. Uh, really amazing. Uh, I don't think people have any idea of what there is there. I was just thinking that the people that have got their heads in the boxes all day, Lavender, like you have, and, and Katie, and, mm. you know, what would museums be doing at the moment if we didn't have you? Yes, and well, I think a lot of museums are probably, in some small places I know, are run more or less by volunteers and I'm not sure that is a good thing at all because I think like libraries now we all need proper trained people librarians particularly um, who are disappearing fast Mm. we need people there who know what they're doing and people that can help them to do it properly otherwise you know things don't get done in the way that they should I'm always trying to persuade people to come in and do things I think it's a great way of helping and um, you're always learning something. Mm. I learn something mm. new every day mm. and it's great for me and you know, I, we sit and talk about all sorts of things over lunch, you know, <laughs> politics, etc. <laughs> so it's all, it's all good fun. Mm. 
sense of time is by far the most interesting aspect. Of course, you're dealing with extinct creatures, not just sea urchins, which are uh, very easy to find, uh, but dinosaurs, which are much less common. But the idea that sea urchins were living a hundred million years ago, that this thing that they're holding in their hand is that old, I think is a little piece of magic that will always get through to children. Sincere thanks to Lee, Lavender and Zach for so generously sharing their insights from Booth with me. I also extend thanks to Kevin Bacon, digital manager at RPM, for granting us permission to use the audio from the 1990s video in this edit. I was really affected by Lee's explanation of how the booth and its administration has evolved over the years and how cuts to museums has impacted the remit of this particular museum, which is still serving its audiences against the odds. The three-phase development that Lee described is vital for Booth Museum, so that it can continue to preserve its enormous collection whilst also being an important reminder of our intrinsic connection with the ecological world. On a sillier note, Lee's description of the freezer that short-circuited stayed with me for many months after this interview, as did Lavender's hedgehog survey, which got lost, and, well, most of Lavender's anecdotes come to think of it, which still make me giggle. But jokes aside, I felt a tinge of sadness from Lee and Lavender's stories. A museum like Booth has a hugely prophetic and educational role to play in Brighton and far beyond, and it needs to be protected at all costs. If there's any way you can support this museum, I really encourage you to do so. Next time, I'll be speaking with Rob White and Kelly Boddington, two members of staff who helped to galvanise RPM's current interpretation practices around LGBTQ history. Rob and Kelly will be talking about queer museum trails, RPM's involvement in Brighton Pride and how frontline staff push the organisation to be braver and more explorative in their programming of queer history. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, hit like and subscribe and please leave us a very nice five-star review. Find out more about the Royal Pavilion Museums at brightonmuseums.org.uk and more about this project at onebyone.uk. On Twitter, I'm Soph underscore Frosty and RPM is Brighton Museums. I really hope you can join me next time. Till soon, goodbye. The voices of the Royal Pavilion and Museums are supported by the One by One Research Project, the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester, The Keep, Arts Council England, and produced by Lo-Fi Arts. Lo-Fi Arts